The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Hello, and welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host, Don DeLorente, and I'm joined this week by my co-host, Mr. Tyler Ball. What's happening, people? Uh, hope everything's going good with you, Tyler. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, yeah, everything's looking good in, in, in the Gate City, Greensboro, uh, North Carolina. How was your um, homecoming, and, and how did the game turn out? Uh, well, homecoming went went well as usual. Um, it is called the greatest homecoming on earth, except no substitutes, including that little little detail shade by that function down in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, but yes, uh, we we do have the greatest homecoming on earth, and it lived up to its billing. Uh, as a matter of fact, the North Carolina anti Aggies uh, actually set. A, um, actually tied a school record with its eighth consecutive victory to start the season. Um, the Aggies are currently ranked in the in both the sports the uh, stats LLC uh, media poll as the number seven ranked team in the nation, and in the FCS coaches poll as the number six team in the nation. And those are the highest rankings the school has has achieved since the 1993 season. So it's uh, very very good times in the in uh, Aggie Land, um, and also they're the top uh, HBCU ranked football team. So uh, exciting times here! All right, all right. So if you guys are in Greensboro, got a few more weekends to go. Go check out the Aggie, support them, and uh, they'll they'll be in the Celebration Bowl, right? If they if they, they went out, right? Uh, yes. If we can pull out, uh, we win two out of our last three games. Uh, we will essentially clinch our birth in the celebration bowl in Atlanta, which will be televised on ABC. Uh, that is the, that game pits the uh, SWAC, the uh, Southwestern athletic conference champion of the SWAC versus the champion of the Mid-Eastern athletic conference uh, or the MEAC, which are the, the two HBCU division one uh, institutions. Um, and it's in also the winner actually gets the mythical uh black college national championship uh, it's uh generally determined by uh by polls by the sbn uh network which is the sheridan uh broadcasting network which is the essentially the black media uh poll and that keeps in track and, and it also include the poll actually includes division two institutions as well but um but the winner of the celebration bowl is is generally considered the best hbcu team all right well thank you for the update on ant and uh you know hopefully those guys can continue to have such a great season and, and get everything that you know they've worked hard for this year just want to remind everybody that know the score is brought to you by cspn you can find us on www.cspn.us you can follow the show on twitter at kts pod we can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And we're also available um, to be subscribed to on any app for iPhone or Android that plays podcasts. So, Tyler, we're going to get into it. The boys of summer are now into the fall classic as the Dodgers and the Houston Astros, coming off that Game 7 victory over the Yankees, um, are now in the World Series. We had game one on Tuesday night. It's 103 degrees in L.A. in October. 
Mm, global warming is real, y'all. As we had Clayton Kershaw in the Dodgers bullpen just have a miraculous outing. Uh, they shut down the Houston lineup. Dodgers won three to one. Uh, two hours and twenty-eight minute baseball game. You would have thought Greg Maddox was back on the mound. How crisply uh, this game was played. Um, it was um, really a, a cool sight to see. You know, all the the Dodger you know people. They've been waiting on this for probably about four seasons now in a row for their team to make it to the World Series. And those people were really excited. All the blue towels and you know Magic Johnson behind the plate and everything. So it's just a really good scene out in L.A. for game one and they did not disappoint the home folks uh, the Dodgers played really well uh, got the lead early and uh, you know they made it a six inning game basically as Kershaw went uh, five strong and then the Dodgers went to their bullpen and uh, like they've been doing for most of the postseason they shut Houston down so Tyler um, you know what were some takeaways that you had from game one of the World Series game one um, essentially uh, Jason Taylor uh you know, Lee hits the first pitch of the World Series out of the, essentially out of the stadium. Uh, it was it was exciting. Uh, and, you know, beginning with that first pitch, and you know, eventually, uh, eventually the guy. Uh, you know, I think that once the once the game got underway, I don't think the weather played as big of a role as as people. Um, as people would think of it to be because, you know, and the guys have been playing all summer long and they've played in hot weather. It was just unusual for that time of year. But I don't, I think that, you know, those guys are used to it. Um, and I think that it was just a matter of, you know, getting in, get, you know, just getting to the game and playing at playing the game kind of takes that, takes the heat and the elements off your mind. Um, but uh, the fact that Taylor got off to a hot start um, and Kershaw maybe exercised some de- some demons that he's had with, uh, you know, looking every bit of dominant. His slider was working. His curve was working, which set up his fastball. And he was able to put away um, – he was able to put away the bats for the Dodgers – I mean, for the uh, Astros. And uh, he essentially shut down the middle of the lineup, which was which is always key. Um and the Dodger bullpen, of course, uh, did what they had to do, um, and eventually uh, we move as we move on to Game Two. That uh, you know they ran up their string of scoreless innings to twenty eight, um, which was overly impressive. And that's that's actually been the story behind the story of the Dodgers is that their bullpen was just a shockingly successful because you know everybody talks about. The Dodger, um, the Dodger staff, which has essentially three aces on it, uh, but you know, no, I mean, you know, Dodgers also have to have arguably the best closer in baseball, in um, in uh, Kenley Jansen, Jansen and yeah. Kenley Jansen. So uh, things went as things went according to plan, um, and actually, when you look into Game Two, they were kind of going to plan as well until um, you know the Dodger bullpen happened. So, right. so as you know, you could talk about game two and how, you know, things changed when All right. uh, Dodgers started giving up runs. Game two, Rich Hills cruising right along. He's got himself a lead. Um, it's three to nothing, actually. He's just, you know, rolling, doing his thing. He pitches four strong innings. Dave Roberts goes to the bullpen. Um, he stretches his bullpen out and everything, like you said, Tyler, is looking good until Brandon Morrow comes in. 
gives up a ground rule double that just nipped off the edge of uh, Yasiel Puig's glove. He was highly upset. I mean, it just barely, barely didn't get in there. But anyway, um, that brings uh, that brings in Kenley Jansen as Dave Roberts is like, okay, danger time. So let me go to my closer. Don't mess around. And uh, the Astros got to him. And they got to him twice. They got to him in the eighth. They got to him in the ninth. They were down three to one going into the eighth. So they got one in the eighth, and then they hit a home run off of him in the ninth. And Bellinger sent one for a ride, but not quite far enough. And so we go into extra innings. And this was probably one of the best extra inning baseball games you've ever seen. Um, uh, El Tuve and Correa lead off the next inning, back-to-back homers. Just you know, just power. And the thing about the heat in LA is it made the ball rocket up out of Chavez Ravine. You know, Dodger stadium is notoriously known as big ballpark, pitchers ballpark forever. And if you get home runs there, you've earned them. Well, with that hundred degree heat and all that in the air, that baseball was flying. And, uh, the one Correa touched, man, that thing really got up out of there. So back to the Dodgers in the 10th and, uh, they get two more, uh, in the 10th, they get a homer, and then they push a, a guy across, and so the game continues. And in the next inning, we get some more homers from the Astros. They finally extend the lead. They get a two-run lead, so, you know, we think everything is going to go well for the next inning. And then uh, the Dodgers again hit another homer to close the game within one. They send the ICLT plead to the plate to tie it up, and he wasn't able to do it. Whereas in the inning before, in two innings before, rather, he did come up and, in, in you know, get a homer to get the uh, Dodgers within one. So the Astros, even though their bullpen has been leaking oil the past couple of games that they've had an opportunity to close the game out, uh, they found a way and they got it done last night. And so the Houston Astros won their first ever World Series game in extra innings, um, where the game one was a two hour and 28 minute just gem of a baseball game this was a four and a half hour epic and uh a lot of people probably you know who aren't really into baseball you know if they caught it late in the game probably was like man i don't know why i haven't been more into baseball because it was you know great pitching you know home runs uh wackiness uh we had a pickoff play at second base actually hit an umpire in the thigh which probably you know could have actually put the winning run in, in uh, on third for the Dodgers in the ninth inning, but uh, Houston got out of that inning, and that's how we got into extra. So, uh, Tyler, um, you know, just your thoughts on just the craziness of game two, and uh, you know, Kenley Jansen finally showed that he was mortal. Um, this is one of those things. I'm gonna go back to one of your original uh, your original thoughts uh, when you talk about baseball and playoff baseball is that. You know, you can uh, you need to pay attention, you know, after the sixth inning, because managerial decisions happen when pitchers begin to wear down. And that was the case in game two. Um, I just think that uh, when you get a when you get an opportunity, uh, you know, going deep into the deep into the counts, um, particularly in the bullpens, the deeper you go into a, into the um into the counts, the better off you have chances of getting mistake pitches. And, of course, uh, in both cases, you have mistake pitches. Uh, and, of course, the lineups were deadly enough to where, you know, you can, you can you know, turn up on them. And, and when you add the fact that, you know, you know, you got a bit of thin air and you add the heat, you know, we got balls flying out. 
And, you know, finally we got, we heard from, uh, from George Springer. I mean, from, uh, from Springer. Yeah, you're right. You know, Springer yeah, struggled Springer. All, he's, uh, he's kind of struggled um, a little bit going into, going into the world series. And, you know, this might be a confidence booster for him um, as he's, you know, headed on to uh, Minute Maid ballpark. Yeah, he was but, three for uh, five with a, a double and basically the game winning homer. Yeah, it was it was it was about time that his bat would get some juice and, and come around. Um, bottom line is that the teams combined for series record eight homers in a single game. Uh, it was just just wild to see. It was it was like the derby essentially. Um, you know, Springer hit a drive that after Cameron Maven got got to, uh, let off the eleventh with the, with a single and. Of course, he's would stole set. He stole second, and you know, driving folks deep in the account, deep into the count, and getting a favorite favorite account. Um, you know, Springer got a pitch to hit, and he drove it against uh, Brandon McCarthy. Uh, just a lot of um, uh, just you know, Dodgers were three outs away from being up 2-0. So mentally, that's got to be a little bit frustrating, knowing that you have three games in minute made. And you know you gotta win one, so um, I think that this is this is a pivotal game. Game three, um, you know, you gotta get. Uh, this is going to be what um, so I think are Dodger, Dodgers throwing out Darvish. And, mm, I um, think so. I think they're going to do go Darvish and against uh, who? Uh, Verlander or Gordon? I think it's okay. Morton because uh, Verlander pitched Morton, last Morton, night. Verlander pitched last night. So yeah, so yeah, Morton. That's right. So this ought to be this ought to be interesting, um, you know. Darvish has been pretty dominant. Uh, he throws a throws a lot of fastballs to set up his uh, super deadly slider. Um, I think the Houston bats, you know, they're going to have to work Darvish deep into the, deep into the count. That's the only way you can you can get him. Don't try to jump on first pitches. Um, I think patience pay, uh, pays off against him. So. You just gotta wear him down, and then maybe get some shots against the middle of that order, middle of that bullpen for the Astros. The Dodgers just have to. Uh, Dodgers are gonna get some pitches to hit against Morton. I see that. I I wouldn't be surprised if they're able to uh, string some, you know, string some old school National League baseball, uh, get some, get some runners on, and try to get some hits behind uh, the top of the order. So uh, it's interesting to see. Um. I would just tell everybody to kind of look out for this. If you have a low scoring game where you have like five runs total between both teams, the Dodgers are probably more than likely win those games. But if you get into a slugfest where you get like, you know, eight or more runs combined between the two teams, that definitely favors uh, Houston because, um, you know, they have the speed, they have the power, and they just have a lot of hard guys to get out. Whereas, you know, Puig is a free swinger. You can kind of get him chasing, and and you know if you're a good pitcher, and you can place your your you know your pitches. He won't be as much of a threat because you know he's not as um, you know patient at the plate. So you know there's a couple of easy outs in the Dodger lineup compared to the Astros lineup. So if the Dodgers can keep the games you know low scoring. That definitely benefits them because they clearly have the stronger bullpen, um, even though it did not show in Game Two. Um, that was definitely an aberration from the way the playoffs have been working. I think that uh, tactically, Dave Roberts might have just went to his bullpen an inning too early. I mean, Rich Hill was cruising 
wasn't laboring. He his pitch count was really low. So I mean, it wasn't a a, a bad situation where it like you know where he was in trouble. He basically you know just pulled him out to the inning. So I think in hindsight, Dave Roberts probably would rather you know put Hill out there for that fifth inning, get him through that fifth inning, and then go you know into the bullpen. You know, one less inning for Jansen um, because you don't want your closer overextended all the time. So, but um. Said, like you said, it's going to be interesting to to see how the uh, Houston, uh, series shifts once it gets to Houston. Uh, you know, the ballpark there is made for offense. So, you know, should be a lot of fun. Speaking of, speaking of offense, right. let's add a factor in, I think, a dark horse factor in the series in Houston will be the DH. Incomes for the, for the Astros. Uh, you got Carlos Beltran, but for the Dodgers, you got a you you can pretty much um, you got some stuff to tinker with here. You got a little more pieces to choose from. Uh, you could go with uh, with Ethier, who's a uh, who's a pretty solid bat. Um, you can go with let's see, it's about three or four. They've got about three or four options, but I think Ethier is the man that you go with in this kind of situation. Um, I think that whoever gets advantage, whoever takes advantage of the DH position while in Houston is um, going to figure uh, going to figure large at, um, in these uh, three games. But um, don't be surprised if Carlos Beltran has a has a big role if um, if Houston takes two of three or Andre Ethier because that gives you extra bat. That's about. 15 to 25, either between 15 to 30 extra pitches that you really have to think about when facing the lineups because, you know, you don't, you, because it's the DH. So that's going to matter. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, yeah, definitely, um, you know, the strategy from the Dodgers part where this, you know, where Houston had to kind of, be kind of shorthanded playing in Dodger Stadium because you know they have to have their pitchers hit, and now they kind of gain that advantage back. And it'll be interesting to see who the Dodgers, like you're saying, who they kind of counter and, and put in their DA spot. But the games in Houston should definitely be interesting. The uh, Astros fans are definitely going to be, um, you know, very excited. You know, considering you know the things that have happened uh, in Houston with you know Hurricane Harvey and everything. Uh, you know, this team has really you know lifted the spirits of the city and, and everybody's all in on them. So um, it's going to be a great atmosphere uh, when the series shift over to Houston. Just a reminder that this is No to Score. I'm your host Don DeLorente. I'm joined by my co-host Tyler Ball, and you can catch us on the CSPN Network along with all our other great podcasts. So please check us out at www.cspn. US. So we're going to shift over to the NBA now, Tyler. Um, you know, the first week is almost is in the books now. As uh, last Tuesday was the start of the season, we've gone through the first weekend and now we're getting into our second week and we're starting to get some, uh, you know, some moves being made. Uh, Dwayne Wade notably has taken his uh, talents to the bench. And uh, J.R. Smith has now been reinserted into the Cavs starting lineup. Uh, they've shifted LeBron over to point guard uh, the last few games uh, and, you know, an experiment there to try to put a little bit more athleticism into their backcourt with D. Rose uh, getting injured, uh, hurting his ankle. And uh, he's out. He's been, you know, probably for a week or two, hopefully nothing more than that. So kind of. 
what are your thoughts on uh, Dwayne Wade uh, basically falling on the sword, going to Tyron Lue saying, hey, man, you know, let me come off the bench. JR reclaiming his spot and, you know, whatever tension might have been, uh, you know, between those two seems to have, you know, dissipated now that Wade is going to be the sixth man. I think that this is a small piece of the puzzle with uh, with D Wade and uh, Jr. Smith because, quite honestly, uh, I know that Jr. Jr. was um, I didn't take Jr. being sent to the bench a, a big of a deal because he's been Sixth Man of the Year. However, I think that this is more more so um, LeBron. Uh, instigating this and just telling D Wade that the team is probably better off with him going to, uh, going to the bench and, you know, D Wade just going public about it and doing it early kind of makes him, uh, you know, it fits the, the, the D Wade class at image. So no shock here. Um, you know, I think that LeBron C is that there's still some opportunity. Now um, you better, you better figure out, uh, what your best lineup is because I think he's going to see some time at point guard as he's starting to play the last couple of games. Now um, they've got a, some kinks to, they definitely have some kinks to work out on the defensive end um, as shown as they, you know, they, they gave up a lot of points to um, two teams that, you know, you don't expect them to lose to, especially the, uh, the Brooklyn Nets. So um, overall, uh, just a, just a small part of the puzzle. Um, just things that you do in the regular season to to make adjustments. I don't think it's really that big of a deal. Um, I just think that uh, bottom line, Jr. is better for what they need right now, and D Wade can of course add a add a boost to that second unit. Yeah, it looks like with Jr. Smith coming back into the starting lineup, that it increases their three point shooting. Um, you know, from their starting lineup, which was. You know, only really designated three-point shooter you had was Kevin Love that you probably had, you know, a lot of confidence in. You know, when LeBron gets streaky, he's a good three-point shooter. But, you know, that's not your first thought when you see LeBron James, you know, pull up from the three is that, you know, he's Mr. Automatic. So adding J.R. Smith back into the starting lineup does definitely give them two legitimate shooters to help space the court. And uh, if LeBron is going to, you know, do this thing as a point guard, kind of give him more space to operate and drive and kick or just play bully ball um, and get to the rim. So, yeah, it'll be very interesting to kind of see going forward how long LeBron plays at point guard. It seems like, you know, he's regressing. It seems like he went to Cleveland with Kyrie so he wouldn't have to be the mission to do everything. And then he realized, oh, this dude's more of a scorer than a point guard, so I still got to do everything. And now that they don't have him and Derrick Rose is hurt, so now he's back into being, you know, Mr. Do Everything again. So just kind of that wear and tear is going to get to him. You know, he's been indestructible, you know, so far in his career. But, um, you know, he's not getting any younger, and he's played a lot of minutes. And you just wonder, you know, when's he going to catch up to him. So, you know, we'll see how he handles his new role as the, you know, the point guard. It seems to be kind of be the, the new theme as Ben Simmons, 6'11", 235, is being, you know, basically the point guard over in Philadelphia, along with uh, Giannis uh, Kumpo, who is, you know, nearly seven feet tall himself and is, you know, kind of playing a role of point guard in uh, Milwaukee as well. Uh, Giannis is tearing the league up right now, averaging almost 35 points a game, um, you know, over five rebounds and five assists. Um, has he officially moved into a top five player in the NBA talent? Not yet. Um, 
you got to give them the whole season. You got to be able there, – there, there are three things that you have to consider before you put Greek Freak in there. Uh, you have to, number one, consider the fact that he is rather limited as far as his overall court game in an all-court game league. Uh, 92% of his field goals have come inside of 10 feet. I mean, that's great that he can't be stopped once he, once he puts the ball on the floor and gets inside the paint. However, um, the weakness, the main weakness of Milwaukee has been their lack of shooting against cold zone, against hard zone teams. Uh, you know, I know they committed a lot of money to Tony Snell, who's supposed to be their designated shooter. Also, Chris Middleton got a nice, got a nice contract. Those guys are going to have to make shots because, uh, because Giannis will not make them for you outside outside on the perimeter. And I think until teams learn to – until he learns to make that shot, and I also include Ben Simmons in this too, until teams learn to res- – uh, to uh, well, until they make teams respect their perimeter jumper, that middle is going to eventually get clogged up. And that's what Toronto did to them in the playoffs, and that is why – you can't necessarily put uh, Atikupo in the top five just yet because those top five players, they actually make their teams better and make their teams compete for championships. Partic- you know, that's what distinguishes the top five guys from the next five and the next five from the remaining other all-NBA guys. So let's, um, you know, I know Giannis has Giannis publicly said he is chasing an MVP. And that's all well and good, but it means nothing if you are bounced out in the first or second round of the playoffs. So I'm just keeping it in perspective. Is he a top five talent? Highly likely. Is he the leader of the next generation of players? Yes. Put him in that same class with Anthony Davis, Carl Anthony Towns. Put him in that in that class. Definitely. But those guys eventually have to lead teams to 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 wins. Uh and in the playoffs, that's what separates you from being, uh, you know, being in that class. Stars are made during the regular season. Superstars are made during the playoffs. Exactly. And that's why I can't put him in my top five just yet. All right. Out in Phoenix, we've got dysfunction. Earl Watson, two games into this season, he's out of there. Uh, two just dreadful performances. They got beat by like 60 almost the opening night. Followed that up and got beat by like 35. And uh, on Sunday when this happened, there is a tweet from Eric Bledsoe that showed up on his account that said, I don't want to be here. Um, that basically led to the you know Phoenix Suns uh, front office basically, you know, questioning Eric Bledsoe about, hey, what do you mean? Are you a malcontent? Are you, you know, disinterested in, in, in being here? And uh, Eric Bledsoe came up with the worst lie ever. He said that uh, he was with his girlfriend or wife at, at the hair salon, and he was tweeting about not wanting to be at the hair salon. The only thing about that was, again, this was on Sunday, and everybody knows that barbers and hairstylists, the one day they don't really do anything is on Sunday. You better be a special client, and he might qualify. She or his wife might qualify for them to, to be open on Sunday. Typically, your your full in the culture shops close on Mondays. You know they work on they work on Sunday and Monday, so they can um so they can be open for long longer hours on Saturday. 
So right. it's possible that they could it could have been a special appointment, but highly unlikely. Um, right. And, and you know this is this is a West Coast here, so so yeah. Um, while while everybody's uh, actually Blesso kind of comes out with sentiment in this because everybody knows Phoenix is horrible. Phoenix is horrible. Right. Phoenix has been a horribly run organization. Uh, McDermott, the GM, has been terrible. He's made terrible decisions as and as far as drafting. Uh, we've heard nothing from their draft picks other than Devin Booker for the last. Uh, their last eight picks, Booker is probably the only one that has been a meaningful contributor to their team. Maybe Tyler Eulis. But other than that, absolutely nothing. And, of course, you know, Jackson, Josh Jackson may be a good one. But still, it's a terrible environment. Um, they're, they're the environment of kids. And Bledsoe is, is the elder statesman and doesn't want to be a part of that. So, so you know, let him, you know, try to find a – a suitable trade where you can give Phoenix some veteran help uh, to blend in with the kids and you put Bledsoe on a contender. And I think both teams can at least um, be settled with that. Phoenix is going to be in, in um, they're going to be in the uh, dark ages for a while right now, because just the leadership is, is just horrible. Um, you know, I, I actually, follow up with Phoenix radio almost daily and they're easily the poor, the poorest run franchise in, you know, in Arizona. And that's including the air, the, uh, the coyotes. So it's, it's just all bad out there. Yeah. Ever since the Calangelo's took their talents East um, Phoenix has really been on a downward slide. And that's really unfortunate because they had been one of the most consistent franchises over the last 20 years or so, um, you know, those great runs that they had with Kevin Johnson, Dan Marley, then they got, you know, Charles Barkley and they went to the finals in, in 93. And, and they then, had, they took a chance on Steve Nash and mm-hmm. Nash, Nash carried them to, to, uh, to consistent appearances in the playoffs. Um, you know, they were, you know, they, they were actually a franchise to be reckoned with. Uh, they had some success with Jason Kidd. So yeah, they were, it's, They've they've kind of fallen on hard times um, with this new ownership and new leadership, and it just takes time to get it right. And I think it starts with, to be honest with you, I think this is the last straw for the uh, for the GM uh, McDermott, and he's he's got to go. I mean McDon- right. uh, McDonough, and he's got to go. Um, where do you see maybe a, a good fit for Eric Bledsoe? If you just had to maybe you know give us a couple of places that might benefit from him uh, landing in, on their team. The hottest rumor on the street right now, and I'm going to support this because it would be a great fit. He is a client of Rich Paul, who is LeBron's agent. Boom. There is your that solves two problems. Bring him to Cleveland. You give Dwayne, you give Dwayne Wade a legitimate guy to uh to boost the scoring with that second unit. Bledsoe can come off the bench in Cleveland. Problem solved. Nights where you want to give somebody off, he's instant offense. He's great in the Eastern Conference. Now, here's the other side. What do you give up? You sit there with Jake with Jay Crowder. Crowder is a good piece to get. Crowder will be a good piece. However, he is your defensive guy. That's something to consider. Um, you've got uh, you've got J.R. Smith, who I don't know if he's going to be the influence the 
influence that Phoenix would want with those with the kids out there. I don't know if he would want to be a part of that that building process. Um, you know, that's going to be a bit difficult to pull off. Um, you know, you do they may want a guy like a Tristan Thompson, but you but Cleveland needs is rebounding. So, you know, maybe you have to pull up a deal with with Alex Lynn or someone like that and bring some size back along with Bledsoe to Cleveland. But I wouldn't be surprised if Cleveland's doing everything to get Bledsoe over. Also, um, if I wanted to put him on another team, what team needs a little bit more scoring and has the pieces to give up? Hmm. How about the Toronto Raptors? Or better yet, the Milwaukee Bucks that we just mentioned. Could be. Yeah, so that'll be a very interesting development. Um, you know, that could definitely, especially if he comes um, to the East, that could definitely, you know, influence greatly a team's chances of, you know, making a playoffs or advancing uh, just because of how weak the East is right now. And a player with um, Bledsoe's scoring ability, like you said, he can be good, you know, just perfect coming off the bench or, you know, be your late game kind of finisher um, to go with your, you know, your starters and just be that, you know, one guy to come in and be your closer type. So it'd be very interesting to see where Eric Blesso, um, you know, if he gets shipped out or, you know, eventually when he does get shipped out, where he goes to. He so, makes Char- he would make Charlotte a, a playoff contender right now. Right. And they need the shooting because Batum is going to be out for the whole season and he was their designated three-point shooter. So um, anything else that caught your eye uh, this first week? Uh, LeVar Ball's been talking and, uh, you know, uh, you know, so, you know, he's had a press conference after every game and everybody's like, why are we talking to the why are we talking to the dad and not the kid? But, you know, the kid doesn't have the personality the dad does. So, you know, if you're in the media, you'll run to the dad. I, I, I do want to say a couple of things about that, um, but but not necessarily on LeVar. I want to give a shout out to Luke Walton for standing up for his team and recognizing the fact that. LeVar's antics may have galvanized the team, even though he did say that it should not come down to the father talking and the guys having to rally behind this kid because this kid's dad's talking to the media. Luke knows what was going on and Luke knows that he's got he's got a bunch of kids on that team to laud them publicly for rallying behind a guy who's supposed to be a franchise leader. That is going to actually um, make them better uh, as far as being together as far as a team. I don't know if anybody is there that's mature enough or has the gumption to be a leader. So anytime Luke praises his team, and I think it's going to be important after every win that he puts together a – that he emphasizes that this is a team effort until they get some sort of big-name free agent to come there – or until Lonzo decides that he's going to be the be the the guy, maybe the vocal, you know, he decides to be the vocal guy in the locker room. But on the court, that team is better when he's on it because he doesn't rush things. He, you know, he wants to play fast, but he's not playing out of control right now. And you know, eventually his shot's going to come together. I mean, right now he's 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 in the low thirties, but however. Um, He's making the right passes. He's making the right decisions with the ball. So they're going to continue to improve because there is some talent there. And for them to beat the Wizards, that uh, that's more of a statement 
of the Lakers more than it is a bad statement for the Wizards. So that's that's a positive. Other things that have caught my eye would be the play of LaMarcus Aldridge. Um, he opened uh, first two games. He gave you 25 to 10 after solving this, solving his uh, inner issues with uh, with the Spurs offense. He is now a focal point with Kawhi out. Spurs are 4-0, and and they've done it, done it impressively. Um, I, I think that uh, Aldridge is going to have to figure out how to remain aggressive when Kawhi returns, but that's been – been pretty uh pretty good um also houston rockets uh starting out three and oh and here is your issue the rockets are almost 15 points better on the floor without chris paul d'antoni has already said that paul is slowing them down that's not good um you know they've gone back to being old houston now that he's out with a knee bruise and Houston's just making making shots right now. But you get you you made your investment in Chris Paul. Paul's supposed to be your defensive guy. He's supposed to get them together on the defensive end. And without him being out there, you know, what are you gonna do? So I'd be cautiously optimistic with the Rockets. Um another uh, another thing that's caught me is Memphis. Memphis still being in grindhouse mode, uh starting out three and oh, including another win over the Warriors. Uh, you know, they have been the only team to beat the Warriors twice since the start of 2016. Um, and they do it the, the rough and tough way. Uh, you got a, gr- a grinding point guard in, um, in Conley. You, you got, uh, you got Gasol who gives, um, gives big guys problems because he can jump out and defend and he's mobile. And of course he can hit the perimeter shot on offense. Uh, Houston's unique. I mean, uh, Memphis is unique, and and of course they get in you defensively. Uh, you know, I like I like the coach, man. He's he's a pretty good guy. So uh, that's that's a good sign for them to get out to this early start. But obviously, can they maintain it? Right. Um, another thing that's a big story <laughs> that broke this week is uh, Markel Folks. Um, he seems to have something going on with his shoulder, um, which uh, the team put out. Uh, was caused by the change of his shot. Um, you know, a lot of people kind of have problems with his shooting form coming out of college, and it seems like he tried to work on it uh, during the offseason, and somehow uh, his shoulder has come, come up as, you know, being an issue now. So um, a little mysterious. It's like, you know, what was he shooting, a medicine ball to, to hurt your shoulder by, by trying to change your shot and, you know, get a little bit better form on his jumper. Um, what do you think about this folks injury? And is it really a big deal? Because it seems like, um, you know, uh, I think it's Covington is, is uh, there. He's playing very well. They, like I said, they got Ben at point guard. Now Simmons running the show at point guard. And, um, you know, Embiid when he is on the court is a problem. Um, sit him right now, sit him. And it's, it's bad enough when you have to hear the word drained, you got fluid development in your shoulder. How? How do you have to have your shoulder drained? It's not. It's not good. It's weird. However, um, you got Robert Covington. Shout out to HBCU product. Shout out to Tennessee State University. Uh, you know, Covington is your your rangy shooter that gives him more minutes. That gives Jared Bayless more minutes, who's a proven commodity. He's who's been on, who's been on the playoff team. And of course, as long as Simmons finds them in the in, in the half court, they're going to be all right. Uh, I don't think sitting, uh, sitting Markel hurts you. I think 
this just gives you gives the guys more minutes. And if those guys are going to play well, then I think it's all well and good. This it's an embarrassment of riches right now, thanks to to the process. Speaking of which, and this will be our last topic on the NBA. Is there a place in the NBA for Jaleel Okafor? Has the game, the way that they we play basketball now in the NBA, has it just passed him by because he's such a traditional low post player who doesn't really play good low post defense on the other side? Well, I mean, he could go somewhere like a Phoenix uh, or he could go somewhere like Detroit. Um, some guys who, who have, he needs to go to a team that has another interior presence. Um, I think you can still get, you can still benefit by having an offensive big, big man. Um, he could be on a playoff team, I guess, and get some, get some spot minutes when you got some fouls to give. Actually, I think he'd be great in Washington because Washington desperately needs some scoring from a second unit big man because Mahimi can only, Mahimi can only take up space and, and maybe block shots. Uh, I'd actually love to see him in, in D.C. But uh, to answer your question, um, I don't think it's passed him by totally, but it's almost there. Um, you know, fortunately, you still do have to score, particularly in the league of stretch fours and stretch fives. So um, there may be room for him on a team that, you know, just needs some, needs some scoring from, from inside of a, you know, he's got to be part of a twin tower type system. All right. This episode of Another Score is being brought to you by Audible.com. Over at Audible.com, they are offering a free audio download and a free 30-day trial. All you have to do is go to www.audibletrial forward slash know the score and pick out your title. Um, you can get Jim Ross's new book, Slaver and Ocker, My Life in Professional Wrestling. Get, you know, sports documentary. Um, John Carlos uh, just released a great um, biography last year. You know, um, cooking books, recipe books, anything, you know, that your heart desires, fiction, nonfiction. And it will be free through Know the Score and Audible.com. So again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash know the score and go search through the 150,000 titles that are available on audible.com. Lastly, we'll get into the NFL. Uh, Last week, Tyler, your guys went out to the Bay and did what you needed to do against a bad team. You jumped on them fast and you kept jumping on them to the tune of 40 to 7. You got to see, you know, a few backups get into the game late. Uh, uh, Alfred Morris got a few more carries than, than he's gotten so far during the season. Switzer got into the game for a couple of carries and catches. Um, just your overall, you know, thoughts of Dallas coming off their bye week and, and looking really sharp. Um, that's that's good news, um, all things considered. Um, I, I would love um, – because no, no game is, quote, unquote, easy. So it was nice to see uh, – Dak hit hit passes through windows. It was great to see um, uh, the guys take advantage of some mismatches they had with the with the Niners uh, secondary and with their linebackers with Ezekiel hitting holes hard. Um, I, I, to be honest with you, I would I wouldn't be surprised if the Cowboys use Ezekiel like uh, Demarco Murray and give him twenty five to thirty carries now because they don't know when he will be back. Uh, I I think that. You know, it was it was a good time. It was a good time to see defense, the defensive line be dominant and get some three and outs. 
because um, I'm not going to see much of that for for a lot of the season. Um, I just want that talent to develop as far as the defense goes, and and that was the, and and we got a chance to see that, so that was a, that was a good sign. Um, you know, I'm gonna get into the preview a little bit later, but I'm going to extend the conversation into the the NFL before we go into the team previews. Um, it was an ugly week in the league. Um, you had 10 teams that scored a touchdown or less. Seven of those teams did not score an offensive touchdown. Uh, you can include the Chicago. I watched the Bears and uh, Panther game. There was one major offensive play of the entire game. So 70-yard 70 70 pass from Mitchell Trubisky to uh, rookie Tariq Cohen from North Carolina a of course. Uh, he actually was isolated in the slot. Caught a 75, caught a 70 yard bomb that led to a field goal. And that was the only offensive score of the game. Uh, Bears beat Carolina 17 to 3. Deep, deep um, rookie corner Eddie Jackson scored twice uh, on a fumble return and an interception return as Cam Newton was awful. Uh, the Titans beat the Browns 12 to 9. Three teams uh, had shutouts. The Rams pulled the Rams, Jaguars. Um, and somebody else pulled off a shutout. Oh, and the L.A. Chargers defenses both pulled off shutouts. So this, again, contributes to the relatively mediocre quarterback play in the league. And, you know, you pretty much are, have to get lucky to watch a good game right now. Yeah, even the Sunday night game uh, turned out to be a snoozer as, uh, you know, Atlanta uh, just failed to convert once they got down the red zone. Uh, they went for it a couple of times and had a turnover. The three times they were really, you know, there to score. And the Patriots ended up, you know, handling them pretty soundly. So, yeah, like you said, it wasn't really a good week for uh, competitiveness and, you know, good play and sound play. A lot of uh, a lot of ugliness going on for us to be, you know, almost two months into the season. But like you said, with the, you know, quarterbacks being so – you know, just up and down from week to week. You don't know what you're going to get. And, you know, that's why they always say the NFL is a week-to-week league. Um, just you can look awful this week and then turn around next week and it looks like you're on track. And then, you know, it doesn't look like anybody's stringing together uh, victories except for the Philadelphia Eagles, who took care of my Washington football team on Monday night. Um just really a game of missed opportunities. Um, uh, Washington started out fast, had a 10-0 lead in the first quarter. Um, they were getting to Carson Wentz, playing good man-to-man defense, bringing a the pressure. They got a couple of sacks on him in that first quarter. But uh, like I told you in the preview last week, it was all about could the Washington football team stay on the field. And in the first half, they could not convert three uh, third and shorts, two third and ones, and a third and two, uh, which basically sabotaged their drives. And uh, you know, Philly got a field goal. Then they kind of let the they changed. They went to the up tempo offense, which uh, made Washington have to get out of their man to man coverage, stop sending their blitz because you couldn't get fresh people on and off the field. Uh, and uh, like you said, Tyler, uh, Mac Hollins uh, ran an out and up on DJ Swearinger for about a 74-yard beautiful bomb by Carson Wentz. And then from there on, then on, they scored 21 straight points. Uh, some bad clock management by Jay Gruden gave him the ball, uh, you know, over two minutes in the awful. In the in the in the uh, second quarter, and uh, CJ Swearinger with the worst missed tackle I've ever seen. Uh, uh, 
get, like I said, tw- three possessions in a row. They just go down the field, 21 straight points. Then Washington gets the ball with about 30 seconds left, and they just take a knee, kick the ball back <laughs> to the Eagles um, to start the second half. They go down and get a field goal. So, I mean, you're down 14 points, hadn't touched the ball in an hour. And um, it's just a game of catch-up. And then uh, Kirk Cousins did, you know, lead him back down, get him within a touchdown. Uh, looks like they were going to get off the field on the third and eight and – Carson Wentz just ducks down and comes out of the, the, the pile of bodies and scrambles for 17 yards. And basically that was a death blow. Uh, the Redskins could never really get any closer than 10 points after that. Um, just a very frustrating game because again, uh, take the first drive, go down the field, get in the red zone, kick a field goal. And my edict has always been red zone field goals will get you beat. And too often as we can kind of shift into the best game of this week, which is the Redskins and Cowboys. That's been the wrap with Kirk Cousins. It's just from 20 to 20, he's really good. But once you get him inside the red zone, uh, he doesn't force throws into tight windows, which leads to low interception numbers, but you don't get touchdowns that way. And another thing that I have a problem with, as far as Jay Gruden's coaching is, and I've had a problem with this with Sean McVay and and uh, Kyle Shanahan before him, is they don't throw the ball into the end zone. How can you score touchdowns if you can't? If they can't run, okay? So that's going to be out. How are you ever going to score if you never throw the ball into the end zone? Yeah, Kirk Cousins has uh, 12 touchdowns, and I think only two of them have actually been caught with the receiver in the end zone. So um, that's kind of the next step for me that Kirk Cousins needs to take. He needs to take it fast because uh, this stretch coming up, starting with Dallas and uh, Tyler, we can get into that now um, on Sunday is going to be the Redskins season probably because they have Dallas followed by taking a trip out to Seattle. Then they have to go to Minnesota. So, you know, they got at least one of these games coming up and Dallas at home is their best one. So, um, you know, talk about um, what you see from your end as, you know, Cowboy fan kind of, you know, actually strength on strength as the Redskins passing game is the strength of their offense and y'all's defensive line is the strength of y'all's defense. And then, uh, you know, coming back the other way, um, it's going to have to be a game where we can, if we can stack up Zeke like we did in the first game last year, we got to make sure we cover Cole Beasley and, and Witten in the slot. Cause they, they just killed us last year at the game at uh, FedEx field. So Tyler, give me your thoughts on uh, what you see between the rivalry game, Cowboys Redskins. Uh, it, it actually, uh, You've kind of covered it halfway. Kirk Cousins hits tight windows now. Uh, Kirk Cousins is not hitting tight windows now. Dak Prescott is. And that is the difference between uh, where Kirk Cousins is ranked and where Dak is. Dak is considered to be a top a top five quarterback right now uh, with all the injuries uh, to other quarterbacks, particularly Aaron Rodgers. Uh, and that's because Dak is, Dak is taking that step forward where he's, he's actually – throwing the ball down the field into coverage and putting it in, putting it where only his guys could come up with the plays. And, and that's, that's been critical. Um, They have to get better at third down. Uh, Dallas also needs to maybe consider using Zeke more in the, they need to get him more on the perimeter. I mean, I know they like establishing the line of scrimmage, getting him in between the tackles. But I would take advantage of the Redskins secondary and take advantage of Dallas's speed and getting Zeke on the outside and 
putting those wide receivers blocking to use because they are pretty good blockers. So I would create those one-on-one matchups and Zeke can can make the guy miss and turn those th- those two and three yard runs into seven, eight, nine, ten plus yard runs. Um, and that of course sets up the play action and get get to put push the ball down the field and take some take some shots. Take some shots. You got Bryce Butler. You got of course Des Bryant. Uh, Dez can can attract some double coverage, of course, but you got Bryce Butler, you got Terrence Williams, uh, you got some guys who can stretch the field. Um, maybe maybe not necessarily a Cole a, a Cole Beasley who makes his living across the middle, but you know you got some, you you saw where um, as I'm, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Mac Hollins uh, got a got an out and up move. Uh, Bryce Butler's known for doing that. I mean he 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 can definitely get some separation and. You know, if Dak hits him with the throw, it could be it's going to be a big play. So, bottom line is, uh, whoever succeeds in the red zone and which defensive line is dominant up front, because uh, Kerrigan has played pretty well against the Cowboys. He just needs to get some help. Uh, and I, I think that on defense, uh, Dallas is actually nursing itself, getting guys back from injury. Uh, Sean Lee is once again back. He's been notoriously good against the Redskins when he's played. Uh, you know, Redskins. The uh, you know Washington's been very fortunate the last few times where they not had they've not had to face Sean Lee. Um, Lee will be back. Uh, they're getting the de- developing guys in Jordan Lewis. Uh, but I would I would if I were Washington I would take my chances against the Dallas secondary. Uh, you know they they. They only have, uh, you know, they don't force a lot of turnovers. They don't make a lot of plays as far as interceptions. Um, I think that they they believe in, uh, you know, you know, making cover, getting, you know, being there in coverage and making the tackle versus taking chances and trying to trying to force uh, force the turnovers or force the action, um, particularly in the passing game. So there are going to be some opportunities for for, for Kirk Cousins. Um, Particularly uh, in the middle of the field, I would I would isolate Lee versus the um, versus the tight end and see if you can win a, win a few of those battles. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a, a pretty high scoring game, but I'm going to go Cowboys 34, Redskins uh, Washington 28. In theory, Tyler, what you're saying is very good as far as what you're talking about. The Redskins maybe may be able to take advantage of, but we they have currently have two problems. Their three best offensive linemen are all nicked up. They're going to play, but they're not going to be at their absolute best. Um, Trent Williams is has his kneecap is basically, like, not secure. So he's gutting it out. He needs surgery. Brandon Sheriff, who is probably the best right guard in the NFL, uh, he got cheap shot it uh, from behind. So it kind of gave him a little back injury. But then he got his knee rolled up on, and he got a grade two MCL sprain. But uh, they're going to try to brace it up, and he's going to try to tough it out. And then Morgan Moses in the game on uh, Monday night sprained both his ankles. So, you know, he's not going to be at his full mobility. And that's definitely going to hamper one of the staples of this season so far for the Washington passing game, which has been, you know, screens to Chris Thompson. Um, The screens to Chris Thompson have worked because the other problem is – the outside receivers for the Washington football team just aren't good. Uh, Terrell Pryor is not what anybody thought he was going to be coming out of training camp. But, you know, when you see those videos at a training camp, those things are, you know, 
doctored up for the receivers and the offensive players to look good. You know, it's not really uh, training camp's not set up for the defense to really shine. So you just get all hyped about these videos and you're thinking, oh, man, we got something here. And then I saw in the very first preseason game, like, oh, this guy tries to catch his ball against his body. And, oh, and he doesn't like to get hit. This isn't going to work out. And so far it hasn't. Uh, Doxon is basically a rookie as he missed all last season. And uh, on Monday night, they kind of ramped up his snaps. He basically started in place of prior. And, um, you know, he had a couple of, you know, few catches here for about 40 yards, but nothing very impactful. Um, Jay Gruden has got to start um, kind of looking at his team and going, who are my best guys and who I, who do I trust and who cannot play because Terrell Pryor is almost getting to the point where he needs to be inactive. Um, the Washington running game is non-existent because we have great pass catching tight ends who can't block, but we insistently see them on the line blocking. So to me, you can talk about all your strategies and you can talk about Kirk Cousins and, the, you know, more red zone touchdowns. This game is a Jay Gruden football game. Jay Gruden and the coaching staff coordinators of the Washington football team have to win this game for their players because they're beat up, they're banged up, they're not at 100%. Thankfully, we're going to get Josh Norman back to kind of, you know, set our pieces back up in the secondary so we don't have to use our depth as starters and they can come in and rotate and be fresh to always have a fresh body on Beasley and maybe use a, a, cor- a cover corner on Witten or, you know, one of our backup safeties on Witten. Um, so this is a game where I'm placing it squarely on the shoulders of Jay Gruden. He's going to have to stop having Jordan Reed block, let him start being our slot player, and they need to start taking uh, more advantage of matchups. Uh, as a guy who grew up watching Joe Gibbs, whose you know, first experience, his first 12 years of watching football, is was watching Joe Gibbs call plays and be really simple, but be really good at what they did and take advantage of mismatches. It just seems that Jay Gruden schemes up his 80 plays and he just goes down the list. He doesn't seem to set up plays or go back to different plays or, um, you know, an example is Philadelphia has really good rushing defense. Come out first play. We get six yards rushing with, uh, with our running back. That's pretty good for us. But instead of, you know, maybe running the same play again or running it to the opposite direction, they bring in a whole new package and, you know, it's just like play one, play two, play three, play four. And it's never any kind of continuity or setting up of anything. So I think that kind of needs to kind of change from Jay Gruden's perspective, be more of about, Hey, you know what? They Philadelphia lost their, one of their cover linebackers, two plays into the game. And they don't have anybody who can cover uh, Vernon Davis. So Vernon Davis should have had 12 catches in that game. He only had four, and they all came in the first half. So that's a strictly coaching thing, and I think that that's kind of where we are uh, in the Redskins season is from whatever they get these next three games, it's going to have to come from Jay Gruden and his coaching staff really identifying where their advantages are and and just going to them over and over and over again. They don't seem to do that. Other teams – you know, they force feed their guys when they find out, so, oh, you can't stop Zach Ertz. He gets nine catches. Oh, you can't stop the deep ball. Oh, they bomb him down the field. And the Washington football team just doesn't do that. Like I said, he just he makes his game plan up and he's like, I got to get all my plays in. And, you know, it, it, it shows when they play against really good football teams and they're playing a really good football team on Sunday. So um, hopefully they can 
Washington can, like I said, kind of – the loss of Jonathan Allen is really going to hurt because he did two things. He was really good against the run, and he is our best interior pass rusher. And he was helping making the quarterback step up or, you know, not able to step up so Kerrigan and, and Preston Smith can get around the edge, give them that extra second they haven't had in the past couple of years to kind of get around the edge and, and get quarterbacks on the ground. That being said – Mobile quarterbacks have killed us. Uh, Carson Wentz twice, Alex Smith. So for Preston Smith and Brian Kerrigan, they're going to have to be really disciplined. Don't let Zach, Zach, uh, excuse me, spin out, get to the outside where he can, you know, run or throw. And if they can just get around them, got to get them on the ground. And uh, so, you know, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Just, you know, if we get around Dak Prescott, how many times do we let him off the hook and he escapes? If he, if that is zero to one or two, I feel pretty good about the chances. If it seems like every time they get around him, he can step up and get out of the way. It's going to be a long game because the Washington team is susceptible to giving up big plays and they give up a lot of third downs and a lot of third and longs. So uh, it's just a bugaboo of, uh, you know, right now kind of what this team is. I think they're a good team, but I think they're a team that needs their coaching staff to kind of step up and put them over the top right now because, you know, the injuries have kind of taken away, um, you know, they're not at functioning at their optimum with, you know, all their players healthy and pretty, you know, it's eight games in, nobody's 100%. But, you know, our guys are probably around 75 70% for some of these key, key players, especially the offensive line. So um, it's a rivalry game. This is, you know, the game doesn't look like it, it might not be that competitive, quote unquote, but this will be the game that Redskins play with a lot of heart and maybe find a way to sneak it out. Um, I'm going to go 30 to 27. As a, as a score, um, and hopefully it's the Washington team on the right side and not Dallas. Um, but you know what, Tyler? We did not talk about concerning both teams. They have new field goal kickers. Dan Bailey hurt uh, a growing muscle uh, out in San Francisco, and he's going to be out. And uh, Redskins kicker Deskin Hopkins basically has a torn labrum in his hip, and so he's maybe out for the season. And so, you know, if the game comes down to place kicking, um, you know, it, it may be a battle of, you know, who can get it through the uprights. Dan Bailey has been such a weapon, Mr. Automatic, extra points, field goals, no matter what distance. The only kicker who may be better than him is Justin Tucker up in Baltimore. So um, are you concerned about if it comes down to the end of a game, you know, field goal or, you know, you guys get stalled out in the middle of the field, um, you know, how confident are you in your field goal kicking? To be honest, um, if – if it means that it changes the call, the play calling for us to get more aggressive, I'm fine with that. But I'm confident in Mike Nugent. I mean, he's won games before. Uh, you know, Nugent's got some distance. Uh, he's been kicking for 13 years, and he's going to be um, – he's got a pretty solid percentage. He's made um, – actually, last year he made um, – he did, however, miss um, miss six extra points. Which was uh, which was the most um, the most missed in the season. Um, he's going to come in cold, so I think that uh, I think that he's going to be. I think that he'll be okay. It's just a matter of making that first kick. Once we make that first kick and get into the get into the uh, get into the rhythm, uh, especially with our long slapper um, LP Latasur and of course our punter, who's the holder, uh, Chris Jones. You just want them. You want them to uh, stay fresh and not necessarily overkick and overthink it. 
But as long as they get that rhythm down, that's going to be fine. Um, I, but, but, however, if they're going to be more, if they're going to be a little bit more aggressive and throw the ball downfield to try to get touchdowns instead of, you know, being comfortable with having a guy like Bailey there to kick a field goal, I am all for it. All right. So, you know, renewal of the rivalry, you know, probably the greatest in football, one of the greatest in sports, Cowboys and Redskins. Now let's move on to Pittsburgh, where it seems like, you know, the drama continues. We had Antonio Brown first couple of weeks. He was upset. He wouldn't get enough passes. He was, you know, mad at Ben throwing water coolers around. You had Ben have a very subpar game and then come out in the media and say, you know, maybe he doesn't have it. And then, you know, of course, there's, you know, questions. What does that mean? Is he, has he lost a step? Is he, you know, thinking of, since he's thought about retirement, is his heart and mind not in to playing football anymore? And now this week, Martavius Bryant, has, uh, you know, let it be known that he's not happy with his current role as he's seen his touches and effectiveness in the offense go to Juju Smith-Schuster at uh, USC. He's come in and, uh, you know, basically been the darling of the city uh, so far this year. And now uh, Martavis Bryant, who is basically playing for a contract, is like, hey, this isn't helping my cause. I need to be somewhere where I can shine and flourish. And uh, the Steelers or who they thought they were. And Mike Tom came out and said, he ain't going nowhere. I'm going to deal with it the way that I deal with it. But all these other teams out here who may be thinking they can give us a call about Martavius Bryant. Nope. He's staying with us. He, we've been vested in him. We've been through the ups and downs with him and we're going to continue to do that. And then two days later, they put him on the scout team and he's inactive for the game on Sunday. So um, Tyler, I think that, if Martavis Bryant was two years removed from being suspended, passed his drug test on his way to being clean for a second year or a third year, possibly, I think the Steelers would have had a lot of people calling and they couldn't have played such a hard stance. But I think that a lot of teams are just afraid that you won't be able to count on them. One. And two, if he's this upset on a team with this many weapons and, and you know, a team that throws the ball all over the place and has got Antonio Bryant on the other side, always making sure you get single coverage. If he's unhappy there, there is no way in the world he's going to come to a mediocre to bad team and, and well, not kill your mom, locker room. Uh, so it's very interesting um, dynamic for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, it just seems like they've got something popping up every week and it, and they're playing really well too. So, you know, try to, like everybody says in football, try to limit their distractions as it looks like, you know, they may be at least, if not the front runner right behind Kansas city as truly the best team in the AFC. So uh, it's going to be interesting to kind of see how this plays out. If uh, Bryant, you know, came back uh, yesterday and basically said, Hey, you know what? I said what I said. They know how I feel, but from here on out, I'm going to just, you know, keep my mouth shut, keep my head down, show up, do my work, and whatever happens, happens. So, Tyler, kind of what are your thoughts about Martavis Bryant and uh, the way Mike Tomlin has handled the situation? Um, I'm actually over Martavis Bryant. I'm I'm over the entire situation. I think it's it's ridiculous. Um, You know, first of all, your team is winning. Second of all, I know this. I know you're about your bread, but you're kind of almost impossible to trade. You have almost no value considering that you are on. Uh, you essentially have two strikes in a three strike program. Um, you've already been suspended for a year. So bottom line, uh, I think this is this is about as open and shut as you do. 
I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if Fitchburg put his name out there and got so little to little as far as offering that they decided to shelve him and not even uh, have him out there publicly on the trade market because there, there's essentially no value. I mean, there's no real need. I mean, heck, nobody like who, who, who wants the kid, you know, you know, he's got he's better off um, being quiet, playing and being a free agent next season. Um, so bottom line is their team is just trying to trying to uh, weather this, weather this storm, this little small distraction. Um, you know, they, they are at the bit, they're about the business of winning football games because quite honestly, the AFC is, uh, you know, we, they see some, they, they see blood in the water as far as the Patriots are concerned. Um, they've actually beaten Kansas city who was almost anointed as the best team in the AFC. I mean, there is a super bowl winning opportunity here. And quite honestly, uh, Bryant can, uh, you know, he needs to relax. Right. Right. Um, another little riff uh, in the news for Cam Newton as uh, yesterday he was at his weekly press conference. Uh, and I uh, guess he was a little bit annoyed as, you know, of course, he passed such a bad game on Sunday against the Bears, as Tyler already highlighted. And uh, they were asking him questions about, you know, what they can do for the offense and why the offense has been so, you know, lethargic for most of the season. And it uh, looks like he just kind of got fed up with the questioning, rolled his eyes, asked if there were any more questions, paused for about 10 seconds, and then walked off. So, um, you know, just more ammunition for the Charlotte media and the people who love to throw arrows at Cam Newton to, you know, say, Hey, this guy's not mature. Um, he's a front runner. Um, when everything's great and we're winning, yeah, that smile is bright and you know, he's magnetic and he's everything that you want. But when things go South, you know, he pouts and he's withdrawn and he's sullen and he's short with people just, um, you know, Cam's 27, 28 years old. Is the maturity ever going to come to him? Is he ever going to, you know, realize that he's got to be professional at all times, even, you know, fake it till you make it? Uh, well, um, I think that uh, this this Newton situation, um, I think that he's he's dealing with a lot of pressure um, internally. I also think that it's, it's, it's external as well, especially after what happened two weeks ago with um, – with Jordan Rodriguez after his comment. Um, I think that there's still some backlash from that. Um, they, right now he can't get the ball down the field, and that was his strength. But then again, he doesn't have a true deep threat. Uh, the team did not bring back Ted Ginn. I, I, can't, I cannot believe I'm saying this, but the lack of a guy like a Ted Ginn, even with all of his drops, he was a threat. And, of course, they're missing – um, his reliable target in Greg Olson, and I think that that is just uh, it's just quite um, quite disappointing. Um, you know, he's already admitted to being a, a quote unquote sore loser. He even said that after the Super Bowl, but I think he's just really tired of the frustration uh, where he just hasn't. Um, he just has been. And you know, the NFL is a week to week league, and bottom line is he's had he's been up and down. And right now it's just a down period. And the only way he can uh, he can take care of that is to get back on the field on Sunday. And sometimes you don't want to deal with, with the noise, including the media. So, you know, all right, dude's booty, dude's frustrated. I'm, I'm you know, 
you know, yes, you got to be a professional and that's what you're, that's all, that's what you're paid to do. Um, but then again, you know, we've, we've let Marshawn Lynch get, get carte blanche and we love Marshawn Lynch and he said nothing to the media in the last four years. So, you know, I think that, you know, Cam being mercurial and being emotional, he's not a robot. Um, you know, I think that it's just times where he's just, just frustrated and, you know, I can see that, but at the same time, if you're going to go up there and have your press conference, you, you, you have to actually do the job. And that's, that is, you know, answer questions. And I think he was just, he just, that's his way of dealing with it and just wanted to be left alone and just want to make it right on Sunday. And that's what, you know, the more, more outbursts that he has or the more incidents he has of this, the more pressure he puts on himself to perform on Sundays. And it's, it's that's about as bottom line as it, it can get. Okay. Um, we had two more major injuries to quarterbacks as we had uh, Jake Cutler break some ribs. Uh, he had to leave the game. Matt Moore, I know you're familiar with him, Tyler, came in. They scored 17 unanswered points in points in the fourth quarter and the Dolphins uh, got a win. Uh, Jay Cutler is going to try to tough it out tonight, which is Thursday against the Ravens. Uh, he's going to be in there with a whole bunch of extra rib padding, of course. And we might have seen the end of Carson Palmer. Um, Carson Palmer broke his arm against the Rams over in London last week. Um, the Cardinals have been kind of slow out of the blocks this year. Of course, they lost David Johnson for the season first game. They seem to have a little, you know, resurgence last week. Adrian Peterson joined the team first week out, you know, who has a big game. But it came back down to reality against maybe the second best team in the league right now, or, you know, at least the fourth or fifth best team in the St. Louis, or, yeah, St. Louis, or, excuse me, Los Angeles Rams now. So um, do you think we've seen the last of uh, Carson Palmer and, uh, you know, the one of the last of the traditional seven-step drop, you know, pocket passers? Yeah, I think that's it. Um, the media has essentially uh, Christian the fact that it's it's pretty much it for Carson. Um, this is another. This is a major injury. Um, I just think that he's uh, it's time. Um, and I think his body, his body has has worn down on him. And I think Saint uh, the Cardinals' window of opportunity closed last year. So I think he's actually a year beyond what they had. And with David Johnson going down. I think this was this that was the sign that you know there's going to be a lot of pressure on him to perform and with no other receiving threat other than Fitzgerald and no other no threat to stretch the field then they were going to be in behind the eight ball anyway um you know Adrian Peterson was a last just effort um so uh yeah I think we may have seen the last of them and I think the Cardinals need to consider or not consider whether or not they need to um, you know, play for the draft and, and already start thinking about the future or whether or not, um, you know, whether or not to go for Sam Darnold if he comes out or Josh Rosen if he comes out. Um, you know, this it's it's some it's some decision time for that entire staff. And uh I just think that, you know, Drew Stanton is gonna be the guy. Um he's he's been in some situations before. Um, he's won them a few games, but um, there's no real confidence in in him right now. So I think it's time to make that move towards the future. Do you think that with Carson more than likely not coming back, that's going to be what tips Fitzgerald 
uh, over the edge and, and then oh, he's yeah. going to walk away as well. Oh yeah. He's done. He's out of there. He's, he's treat, he's essentially treating this and speaking with the local media. He's treating this like he's, he's on a retirement tour. So um, I think he will make it official once the season ends that he will be, um, he will be done unless he's given some ridiculous offer to join a, 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 a super bowl team, um, you know, like the Patriots or, or the Cowboys or, even the Steelers, his hometown, uh, I, I can't see him coming back. Okay. You've been listening to Know the Score. I've been the host, Don DeLorente. I've been here with my co-host, Tyler Ball. Now, Tyler, we're about to open it up for your final thoughts and comments. Uh, anything that you'd like to touch on that we didn't get a chance to during our conversation? I just want to say uh, the uh, Heisman voting, um, I, you know, you can pretty much give the award to Saquon Barkley. It's his to lose. Um, we were at this point last season where Lamar Jackson has pretty much sewn up the award. Uh, Barkley has been the best player in the country, and I think he solidified his performance, um, scoring three touchdowns and accounting for almost 230 yards against Michigan. Um, he's going to be the he, he's pretty he's got a shot for being the all-time leading rusher in Penn State history. Uh, Penn State has put out several great running backs. Um, you know, even though they're lo- they're known for their linebackers, they are, they have had some outstanding running backs that have gone pro. Um, I would not be surprised if Barkley is listed as the greatest Penn State running back ever because of what he can do with the football. He's extremely dynamic, and he will be an exciting guy to watch in the pros next season. Uh, however, um, there is another uh, two other powerhouse programs that are intersecting um, that would be the fighting Irish of Notre Dame and the U of the University of Miami. Uh, They are on a collision course for a November 11th showdown with a potential playoff spot going to the winner. And I, all of a sudden uh, you've got two traditional rivals um, that really haven't been, relevant on the national scene in about a deck um, nearly two decades um, with the exception of maybe one or two seasons from Notre Dame, um, you know, they're going to clash in a, in an all important matchup. And I'm super excited that the nostalgia factor in me kind of, kind of has me looking forward to how these schools are going to match up with something real on the line related to the national championship. So um, provided they hold serve these two weeks, November 11th will be pretty awesome. Yeah, it might be uh, Catholics versus convicts, the modern-day version, huh? Yep. Even though Miami's not that that school anymore that they used to be, but, you know, just the nostalgia of it is going to be pretty fun to see those two iconic teams back on the same field playing each other. It's been, you know, so long since they've had a high-stakes, you know, meaningful game since, you know, the early 90s, uh, late 80s. Um, you know, I can remember that was that 1992 when Miami went up there and got them. Um, I know they had that epic battle in 88. Um, that was just fantastic. So, yeah, they've had some of the most spectacular games in, you know, recent college football memory between Miami and Notre Dame. So, yeah, it'll be fun if they can continue to, you know, stay on the track that looks like they're headed on. My final thought will be uh, a congratulations to none other than Daryl. Bubba Wallace, as he has finally secured a ride, a full-time ride, in the highest series of NASCAR. He will be driving the iconic 43 of Richard Petty uh, Motorsports. Um, 
he will become the first full-time African-American driver on the circuit since Wendell Scott in 1971. Um, this is a huge step for NASCAR. Um, the kid has a ton of personality. He can drive the wheels off the car. Um, he's going to be in a little bit of substandard equipment compared to, you know, the bigger dogs out there, Joe Gibbs racing, Hendrick Motorsports, Penske racing. Um, but nonetheless, he's got a chance to show off his talent um, and showcase, um, you know, to America just who he is and, um, you know, bring some color to NASCAR besides the checkered flag. Um, I've been touting Bubba Wallace for three years. Um, he's a standout in the uh, truck series, which is kind of like the single A of NASCAR. Uh, uh, he moved up to the uh, Xfinity series, which is kind of like more like their triple A. So I guess the choice would be like double A and uh, was doing really good this year and uh, just ran out of sponsorship. Uh, he was fifth in the points. He was probably going to be in their, in their playoffs, but um, around midway through the season, he ran out of sponsorship and then basically lost his ride. Um, there's a big outcry on social media for, you know, somebody give him a chance. Somebody found some money somewhere, give him a chance. Um, he got a few races in the top series of NASCAR when uh, the 43 driver broke his back at Kansas and had to miss about six weeks. Uh, Bubba got four races to race and show what he can do. Um, proved, you know, that he could definitely hold his own uh, at the top series. And then he got a chance to uh, drive a truck again at Michigan after sitting out for about six weeks. He gets out there and wins that truck race. And I, th and I think that was kind of the final bell that he needed to ring to kind of get people to notice that, yeah, this kid can definitely needs to be in this top series. Um, there's um, Ryan Blaney, Chase Elliott, Kyle Larson, Daniel Suarez and Bubba Wallace were all kind of like the rat pack of trucks. They all kind of came in within one or two years of each other and they all kind of moved up through the ranks together. The other four guys that I mentioned have been in the cup series. I know Carl Austin has been there for four years now. This is Chase Elliott's second year, Blaney's second year, Suarez is rookie year. And now Bubba gets to join them next year. And that's the future of the sport. Uh, Dell jr. Is retiring this year. A lot of people are disappointed. A lot of viewership may turn away from the sport because he's been the most popular driver. And there's, you know, so many people who were Dale Earnhardt fans. And then when he unfortunately got killed, they transferred their allegiance right over to Dale Jr. And for the past 20 years, he's kind of been, you know, the guy. But now that he's leaving, Jeff Gordon's left, uh, Tony Stewart's left, uh, Matt Kenseth. This may be kind of his last season as he doesn't have a ride or sponsorship. Carl Edwards has left the sport. And it's really a, a time of, of change and a new era is uh, being ushered in. And, and I'm glad to see that Bubba Wallace is going to get a chance to be one of those guys. So um, good luck to him. And whoever's going to sponsor the 43 car, they're going to get a whole lot of airtime uh, coming up in February at Daytona because he's going to be one of the biggest stories uh, leading into the new NASCAR season. So just another congratulations the bubble wallace and um so yeah so now we um have a you know black driver in nascar and hopefully he can do you know what tiger Woods did for golf for nascar and bring a whole nother set of eyes and whole nother set of fans and uh you know reason to get excited so congratulations to bubba and i can't wait to see what he does next year nascar needs that especially after their statements um dealing with uh you know Dealing with the so social justice, their response to uh, to drivers and their position on the American flag and how that did not go well well 
Um, it didn't go over with the alumni of NASCAR's diversity program. Um, guys have spoken out, uh, such as um, a, a well-known celebrity who went through that program, uh, Terrence Jenkins. Um, you know, he spoke out against NASCAR's stance. Uh, so this is a shot in the arm as far as diversity uh, and also for, uh, you know, they've got a they, one of the first African-American crew chiefs uh, that's in, that's also that's also in and that's that's pretty big too so you know it's it's not dying off and and of course now you have a driver in the main series that's going to be big and i just hope that you know there's just going to be some more opportunities and and you could get you know the key is to get sponsorships and as long as you know you have the sponsorships you're going to have the drivers so so as um as we look forward to uh closing out i uh, just want to say uh you know you have been listening to know the score here on the CSPN. Don't forget to check out our shows. Uh, and, you know, we have several brand new podcasts, so we're kind of in transition, especially under the leadership of Classic Materia and my co-host Don DeLaRente. And for everyone here, including our hosts that are that are in their absence of That's So Jesse and The Bias Wilborn, you can find him on Twitter at nwilborn19. I am Tyler Ball. And now, you know the score.